The University of Arizona is really unique in the world with the depth and breadth of faculty that we have in areas that are now very important to modern mining. And, and one of those areas is, of course, environmental sciences. What can we do with better water management, ecosystem management, energy management, things like that. The other area that is also incredibly important to us is what we call a social license. You know, today the community has to basically grant that social license to start a mine or to expand a mine. And that means that we've got to work with anthropologists and geographers and sociologists and Native American specialists and all of these social scientists who probably never in their lives thought that they would talk to a mining engineering professor. And now we're finding so many ways that, that they contribute to what we want to do around sustainable mineral resource development. And, and again, we're very unique in this. So I think this is one of the coolest things that we're doing right now. Uh, we're working with a professor in the philosophy department on uh, creating ethics courses for mineral resources students and professionals. So you're going into a developing nation. You may be one of the first Westerners that that particular community has seen. And how do you relate to that community? What are their philosophical underpinnings that might be different from a Western uh, perspective? And what can you promise or not promise to do? How do you deal with a government that doesn't necessarily pay their employees, but they expect to be paid for services they deliver? We might call that a bribe. Uh, but to them it's, it's their income and so there's just all of these issues because a lot of times mineral resources people are the first ambassadors uh, to be in that particular region and you can do a lot of damage or you can do a lot of good. Hi, my name is Ahmad. Hi, my name is Steve. And this is Exploration Radio, a podcast focusing on the past, present and the future of exploration. On this week's episode, I'm Mary Poulton. I direct the Lowell Institute for Mineral Resources, and I'm a university distinguished professor here. I've been on the faculty for about 28 years and uh, work in a broad array of, of uh, areas related to mineral resources, from engineering and geology to law, public health. Uh, so first of all, thanks a lot for joining us on Exploration Radio. You bet. One of the reasons why we wanted to interview you is that we are trying to explore the social license that a lot of mining companies have to navigate. And we're exploring this in a few episodes. And I guess what I found interesting is that with the work that you do at the University of Arizona, at the Lowell Institute, you guys are navigating this whole concept of social license uh, really interestingly. So let's start off by, would you mind giving a little bit of background about what you do at the University of Arizona? So the University of Arizona has a very long history in mining, uh, mining geology, mining engineering, extractive metallurgy. And as we really looked at what was needed for the mining industry going forward around the year 2000 to 2004, our industry partners said, look, we have a pretty good handle on the science and the engineering, but what we don't have a handle on is all of the things that go around social license. Um, and so community relations, environmental stewardship, uh, how to handle closure, 
smaller footprints, uh, eliminating the boom and bust cycles so that we're not getting uh, layoffs and, and kind of that negative impact on the community, walking away from from properties and kind of abandoning towns. And so, so the industry came to us and said, look, um, we need this core set of disciplines, but around this, we really need to wrap the environmental scientists and the anthropologists and um, all of these other skill sets that typically we haven't engaged in a technical sense. So when we set the Lowell Institute up, it was, uh, we think of it as kind of a hub and spoke model where the center of the wheel, the hub, is our core disciplines, the mining, the geology, the metallurgy. And then we connect to all these other disciplines with these spokes. And so anthropologists aren't necessarily going to know anything about mining unless they connect to us. We don't know very much about anthropology. And so you have to build those bridges and start to find that common vocabulary that allows you to talk to each other. Um, we engage the philosophy department. Uh, which was very, very fun because they work on applied ethics and they became very engaged with us about really looking at resource development in the lens of doing things that were ethical, uh, not just profitable. So would it be fair to say that you wanted to evolve the concept of mining development beyond the core sciences to more the social sciences? I guess that's what it seems like you wanted to involve a lot more of the attributes that social scientists have to deal with rather than just purely technical scientists. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we we ran into problems, I would say, you know, probably going back to the 60s and, and 1970s, um, because we thought it was good enough to just do the technical piece right. And everything else would just kind of be taken care of by existing laws and regulations. And now, you know, the whole concept of social license is a little uncomfortable using that word license because it sounds like it is a legal grant of, of privilege um, when it's not. But, you know, we, we ran into trouble because the technical piece was no longer sufficient. It was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient to be able to do business. And it wasn't a situation that was going to be resolved by mining engineers and geologists taking an anthropology class. Uh, the, the knowledge that you needed was far too deep, and we had to find some way to connect these disciplines. So is it fair to say that the, the, the concept of the economic benefit of mining development has broadened past just the pure financial benefit that companies could provide? Like it has to be a lot more of a social benefit or a community benefit, environmental benefit, all of these different things? Yeah, I think that um, the mining industry still, I think, relies very heavily on the economic benefit. How many jobs are we going to create? What's going to be the, the impact on local and regional uh, GDP kinds of issues. And those are important. But people increasingly want to align that economic development with their core values. And jobs for the sake of jobs in many areas in an affluent country, uh, like the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe, um, they're, they're going to look for that alignment of both the economic development and, and their community values and their personal values. Mm -hmm. And so we have to have a language, I think, around those values 
that we don't necessarily have right now. We can talk jobs and we know how to estimate jobs and we know how to estimate taxes paid and things like that. But we're not very good yet about thinking about values and translating what we're talking about down to what people absolutely not just want or need, but value because that's not negotiable. So do you care to comment what have been the motivating factors for this broadening of the definition of development? Well, I think part of it is certainly affluence. Um, Part of it is more uh, social awareness. And it may not necessarily be social awareness by the members of the local community most impacted by the mine development, but with the growth of um, NGOs and the fast pace with which we can share good and bad information on the internet, there is just sort of a, a level of awareness and, and in many cases misinformation, honestly. It's not just that local community now that is having a say. It's sort of this global community now that's connecting via the NGOs and the internet that are having a voice in some cases as bigger than the local community. So we see some cases where the people closest to the mine site actually are the ones who need the jobs. They're in a rural area. Um, We're not going to see factories built in these small rural areas. Uh, They want the development. They want the jobs because they're high paying. Uh, but the outside influence becomes very loud. And, and it looks like that local community is the one that, that doesn't want the project. So it's, it's really complicated uh, because you don't necessarily even know who it is that defines the community and who you're talking to and who's talking about you. That's a really interesting point that the definition of the community that the company has to play in is now completely different. The globalization to some degree of the industry has kind of made the problem good and bad in some ways. You've lost uh, a lot of links that you used to have with local stakeholders because now you're a global entity. So if you're a US-based company, you're now judged by what you do in Colombia, yep. which may or may not have been the case before. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know transparency is good. Um, I, there's no question that we have far more communication uh, with people about projects far in advance, but that communication isn't necessarily education. And and you have people talking to each other at cross purposes because, again, they don't have that shared vocabulary to use. And the community, however it's defined, doesn't necessarily have experts that understand uh, what the mining company is saying, and the mining company doesn't always understand where the community is at. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, in terms of their sophistication with how what the risk is in terms of whether this exploration project is ever going to turn into anything, um, you know, when the mine might get built, all of those kinds of things. So I think, you know, and it's not just mining. Obviously, we see it with oil and gas. We see it with pipelines. We see it with power lines. We see it with wind farms. There's just this, I almost think the faster our technology changes, the more resistant we become to change in our local uh, environment. We, we want this little island of peace and tranquility where we're sheltered from this changing world and, and we don't want anybody to come onto this island with us. 
And I think this concept of change, I think, is really important because you earlier talked about the fact that what does mining development actually provide? And as we uh, develop as a community or a society, the society has more options for development as well. In, say, a developed country, you could get the thousand jobs that mining is going to provide in 10 different ways. So, so society does have the choice then to go, well, like, do we really want the thousand jobs out of mining, which comes at a like a social or environmental cost? Or do we want a thousand jobs from like uh, building an Amazon factory, which will come with very little like social or environmental cost? And I don't think the industry has been uh, very um, attuned to changing in that aspect that like our proposition has to change along the way as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because we hear that same argument, you know, it's like, well, you could get the same kind of, of impact on our GDP and the same tax benefits and all of that if, if we have uh, more Uber and, and more Amazon kinds of businesses. And so, you know, then we make the argument that you can't have those businesses if you don't have mining to produce the raw materials uh, that all of that technology is dependent on. But there's this disconnect that, that we have in our brains because we can rationalize as consumers that we want these things and that they're made of stuff that has to come from somewhere. We get that kind of, you know, on one level. But then the other part of our brain says, but my values say I don't want these impacts. I don't want, I don't want my, my view impacted. I don't want my sunsets blocked by a tailings storage facility. I don't want dust or traffic. And I think because we increasingly are so far removed from actually producing things, like when we were an agrarian society, That's right. you saw a, a direct relationship between your work and, and some product. Um, we don't have that many factory workers anymore that actually get to see something built with their hands. So there's this disconnect between what we want to possess and use and the fact that that's got to come from somewhere because miraculously it always does just show up somewhere. Yeah, it's this classic uh, problem that we, uh, we want all these things, but as long as the raw products don't come from my backyard, that's fine. It's, in Australia, we have this thing like nimbyism, not in my backyard. Yeah, we're happy for all the raw materials to get produced because I want the latest iPhone, but as long as it doesn't happen in my backyard, I'm totally cool with that. Yep, yep. We call them bananas. Build absolutely nothing anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, it seems like mining sits in this um, this quite interesting interaction between the social pressures as well as the environmental pressures, as well as economic pressures that impact the industry, especially in its core development. Do you think there's other industries that face the same problem? Could we learn something from them? I think they're going to learn something from us, actually. I, I think mining is actually far ahead of other industries so, for instance, oil and gas, because so much uh, over the last several decades was offshore, they really didn't have to think about communities because they were 12 miles out into the ocean. Um, once they started to do fracking and they had to come on land, then they were really confronted with what it means to have social license and, and community engagement. Pipelines are in the same place. I mean, it used to be nobody cared if a pipeline was put through because you were paid for the, the easement on your land. Now nobody wants pipelines. We want cheap gasoline and we want cheap natural gas to heat us when it's 50 degrees below zero outside, but we don't want the pipeline itself. I think the plastics industry 
is going to find themselves in this situation now. Um, there's just an increasing awareness about damage of plastics in the oceans. And so, you know, we're banning plastic bags. Uh, we're banning plastic straws. Uh, and, and guess what those straw replacements are made out of? I just bought my son stainless steel drinking straws for Christmas. That's right. If you look at videos from the past, they always used to have metal straws and kind of the diners and things like that. So we're going to go back to that same thing now. Yep, yep. So, so I think you know, mining has has probably been out in front of this issue now since the mid nineteen nineties. You know, maybe even going back to the nineteen eighties. Um, certainly haven't solved the problem, but we're a lot more sophisticated in how we uh, talk to communities and how we manage social expectations. I think corporate social responsibility in the mining industry is far ahead of most industries. And where you have our end users of materials, particularly in electronics, uh, where they're getting pushed back in terms of where they're sourcing their materials. Um, you know, Apple may not put newly mined materials in any of their products going forward. That's a great social statement. I don't know that that is feasible. Um, unless we all want to inherit our iPhones and, instead of actually buying a new one. So, so companies, I think, you know, a lot of them that haven't had to deal with this are now trying to, to figure out how to deal with these social issues. And, um, and it's fascinating because, you know, I don't know that there is a solution, but um, certainly it's not something that's going to go away. I always find it a little bit interesting when companies say that they couldn't predict the change that was coming. But as more egalitarian and more developed a society becomes, you know that it starts growing a different conscious about how it looks at raw materials and products. You just have to look at the organic food kind of movement. You know, we're a lot more aware of where our food sources come from now than I think we ever were probably a decade or two decades ago. So you can see that as society develops, it becomes a lot more uh, socially aware. And I always find it interesting when companies say, oh, well, you know, we never saw this coming. And it's like, well, you, you know what the future endpoint will be. What you don't necessarily know is the rate of change. But you could still be prepared for that inevitable change. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And in fact, I think if you look at social license, it's an evolutionary process. It, it wasn't a revolution. And you can go back to the late, 1800s when we became affluent enough after rapid industrialization that people looked around and said, wow, we've cut down all the trees. Uh, we've silted up streams. You know, we've got smokestacks, more air quality. So, so we started with conservation. You know, let's set aside some of these really beautiful areas. Let's set aside forests. And then that evolved into the 1950s where it was, well, it's not good enough to, to set it aside. We have to preserve it by keeping people Away. So we got the wilderness areas and that movement through the 50s and 60s. And then when Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, came out, everybody thought, wow, you know, it's not, it's no longer set it aside, keep people out. But now we've got this whole issue of all these things that we've been making and dumping into the environment. And we don't know their, their fate and their interaction with, with the ecosystem. So then, it, you know, the environmental movement and much more civic activism. Uh, developed in, in part, I think, related to protests over nuclear arms um, in the 1960s, protests over, over wars, um, and that translated into environmental activism. 
And then the environmental activism transferred into social activism because we got all the environmental regulations we wanted um, at, at the time in the 70s. And so now what are we going to complain about? And also, I think at that time, the world became a lot smaller. If you were uh, in a small town in North America, you didn't necessarily know what was happening on the other side of the world. But now, all of a sudden, the world becomes smaller, and you are acutely aware of what's happening on the other side of the world. So, yeah, yeah. so I think that dynamic changed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We haven't necessarily connected. We haven't made the world smaller in our minds where supply chains are concerned yet. I think we, we do not grasp That's a great point. what a supply chain looks like, and therefore we don't necessarily grasp that if your cell phone has 62 different elements in it, that that's 62 different minerals that are probably coming from 40 different mines in 30 different countries. Uh, that's a little too big for us to grasp. But yeah. uh, I mean, I argue like, you know, if people in the tech industry were more aware of where their raw materials came from, I think they would they would know a lot more about the geopolitics in places like Africa and Asia than they currently do. Oh, absolutely. And I, I've kind of contended that, you know, before a material scientist is allowed to put two elements together and say, hey, look what this can do. It'll be fantastic. They need to go back and look where that stuff comes from and, and what all the problems are going to be first. Um, so... We're, we're very clever at putting stuff together, but, but we haven't been very clever about taking that stuff apart. And if, I, if there's one thing that's going to come out of social license that I think is going to be very positive for us, it's going to really force us to think about the life cycle of materials and, and take a very hard look at, at not having to dig a hole in the ground to bury something after we've dug a hole in the ground to make it in the first place. So this whole idea of urban mining, uh, recycling life cycle analysis to me is a very, very positive outcome from all of the social license. I think your point is right that we could as an industry become a little bit mature about having a, a cyclic economy. We're very, I think we're very one dimensional in how we think about like how do we supply raw materials you know we dig it out of the ground we sell it and then that's it we're, we're done from that point companies could take a little bit more onus and understanding how that raw material gets used could mining companies play a role in the development that the industrial design of products so to make the materials more recyclable yeah and i think you know if, if you go back and look at kind of historic companies um that were vertically integrated. So Ford Motor Company had mines to, to provide their steel. They had rubber plantations to provide their rubber and things like that. Um, and when we got rid of that vertical integration, then it all became somebody else's problem. Um, somebody else's problem to supply me with the aluminum. Um, I don't care where they get it as long as it shows up at my factory on time. And it's somebody else's problem to deal with the car when the consumer doesn't want it anymore. And I, I do think that to some extent, mining companies need to start thinking of themselves as materials companies. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And maybe they're not ultimately responsible for the end fate of the consumer product, but there ought to be more engagement about um, not building products that we can't reuse in some capacity. You know, it's kind of my pie in the sky crusade on this because I absolutely hate waste. And so... I, I still think that we have a ways to go there, but I do think that we're evolving in that direction. 
And even I think maybe from a business sense, to me, it makes a lot more sense that if you become highly specialized in the niche, which is just mining stuff, then aren't you more likely to be disrupted if someone else comes up with a completely different method? So from that point of view, truly you would want to make your business a little bit safer in that sense. Yeah, I think it's it's a complication to the business and and. I can understand that, you know, there's a lot of risk in mining. It's mining is a very, very complicated business to run. Um, but, but I think there just needs to be more, more thinking about that end fate, more partnerships with the downstream suppliers. So this whole idea of responsible sourcing of materials, I think is sort of the next step after social license to operate. Um, and I think those conversations are just starting to happen in a more meaningful way now uh, as to what that actually means. So it's not just that you're certifying that child labor wasn't used uh, or that you didn't have armed militias making people mine at gunpoint. But I think that responsible sourcing goes to really the whole life cycle of mining and the whole life cycle of that manufacturer and that ultimate consumer producer, as well as the consumer themselves. If you talk about this kind of world in the diamond space, the industry did it because they were essentially forced to do it. So you could be on the front foot and say, well, like, you know, we'll do it on our behalf because that might be a differentiator for companies. Yeah. It's not that we can't do it. It's like, yeah, as soon as it's legislated, we're like, oh, of course we can do it. But why don't we do it before then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, uh, if, if somebody didn't force you to do things, you know, would you would you do them um, just because yeah, exactly. it's a social good? And uh, that's always a that's always a tough one. So let's divert a little bit into that. These problems that I think the industry now faces, they're not new. If you look at kind of I guess you could look at the social science or the academic literature in social sciences. These problems were uh, well researched or well documented. So the question I have is, is part of the onus of setting up something like the Lowell Institute is that you want to make these, this research a lot more applied? Because maybe that was a gap before the, the research was done, but the application of it wasn't very clear on how people could use it? Um, I think part of it is, you know, academic is very tribal, um, very siloed. And, and so, A, you don't know what the other groups know. You don't even necessarily know how to access that information or even translate the vocabulary uh, that's used. And, you know, we, we tend to operate, particularly in academic circles, out of uh, deep self-interest. Um, and so we stay in our own little lanes, don't divert too much. So I always, for me personally, because I'm so interdisciplinary, find it fascinating to sit down with people from different backgrounds and find out what they know, what they, how they think about problems, what their frame of reference is. So we, we just don't do that. Um, I think mining actually does it more than just about any industry now. Wow. Okay. Um, and certainly on our, our campus at the university of Arizona, I would say we're, we're probably the one really, really true interdisciplinary uh, research center on campus because the environmental scientists can talk amongst themselves, but they're talking environmental science. You know, it's hydrologists and atmospheric scientists and and uh, 
forestry people and, and all of that kind of thing, but they're all environmental scientists. Uh, we're engaging uh, public health specialists, uh, medical professionals, uh, landscape architects, philosophers, anthropologists, geochemists, uh, microscopists, uh, you name it. Uh, we don't have art history involved yet, but, but certainly there's, there's an angle there. I mean, once you get art history involved, you you have the full set, basically. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. It. That's right. You know, so so my my angle there is, you know, just looking at the source of of uh, mineral based pigments uh, going back through <laughs> through time with with art, but uh, that that's just kind of a a fun side thing. But uh, you know, so so I think what it really comes down to is it's a culture shift in academia to really have these different disciplines deeply engaging with each other. And, and do it in a really meaningful way that produces something and not just, you know, sit around the table and have some discussions over coffee and then go back and do our own thing again. Um, so, so the Lowell Institute's really been trying to make this culture change, uh, at least at the University of Arizona. And, and certainly we've seen a lot of uh, universities around the world want to try and do the same thing. If you step back and think about kind of the philosophy of problem solving or the, even the philosophy of science, when we say that a problem is a, a problem for physicists or a problem for biologists, to some degree, those are artificial boundaries. You know, it's not like nature goes, ah, this problem is a problem for biologists. We kind of define those artificial boundaries to say that, well, we think this is a biology problem, so let's get a biologist to look at it or you know, an engineer so, so I guess one of the things that I like is that I think as you describe that wheel and spoke model, that you kind of dissipate those artificial scientific boundaries that we kind of define for problems. And I think that will probably lead to maybe a bit more mature problem solving framework rather than just, well, if the environmentalists can't do it, then nobody can. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we kind of want to build those those Alexander von Humboldt kind of people that were great at observing and great at critical thinking and could could connect a lot of things together. And, you know, the people that tend to engage with us have that same kind of mindset. They may have that deep disciplinary background, which is essential, but they realize that that interesting problems are at the boundary. Um, and and so... Right. They're, they're looking at, you know, where their boundaries intersect with, with other boundaries. And, and that, to me, is where the energy really is. And so in that sense, you're essentially trying to create people that not only have the depth of expertise, but also the breadth of expertise to step uh, outside of their, uh, their discipline. Would that be a good way to put it? Yes, we, we talk about making a mining ready and a mining knowledgeable workforce. And what we're really talking about is making T-shaped people that have this, this deep disciplinary capability in something, but then that T part of it crosses over into these other disciplines. And, you know, if you think about what an undergraduate science or engineering degree is, you had to take all these general education courses and you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I want to be a mining engineer. Why am I having to take this cultural studies or history of Africa kind of class? And what we're trying to get students to understand is the reason that you need to understand those things is because you're going to have to know this to communicate to all of these other people. And, and you're going to have to communicate what you know about engineering, and you're going to have to understand what they're telling you 
about communities and, and anthropology and, and history and, and all of these things. Yeah, I think that's a valid point that in the future, the, these skills are, are going to have to evolve. If you're working in certain places in Africa, if you don't even have a basic understanding of kind of the political history or the community history in that area, I'm not sure if you're really going to be very successful because it'll be uh, a very alien environment for you to work in. Yeah, and I think that, you know, for geologists in particular, the exploration geologists are often the first uh, people that the community is going to see representing that particular company. And, you know, how many geologists really get uh, that kind of community training? You sort of develop it over your career if you've been put in those situations, but we'd like to have people come out of our program really having a deeper appreciation for both what they know and what they don't know. And the fact that it's not just about doing great science, but it's really about doing great science with that community and in the interests of that community. I'll answer your question. I think there will be maybe less than 1% geologists that are 23 years old and would have that kind of social awareness or community awareness to deal with. You know, unless your personal background allows you to have that experience, it's not something you're going to be ready to develop at that time. And there's a lot of 23-year-olds that are running around on exploration projects. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, what we see that, um, you know, some people have done missions uh, in other countries and some have had military service. And so they've, they've been around the world. They've been in, in some rough areas, but they're older, more mature. They've got a different lens to apply. But boy, you know, you're coming straight through university and, and out there on a drill rig in Suriname and uh, your, your eyes are just wide and you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And I think the, the concept of time, I think there is something that we probably have to be aware of. If you are looking for people that have the depth of knowledge as well as the breadth of knowledge, then I think maybe there's a time frame thing that we have to be aware of as well. Maybe we might not have 23, 24-year-olds that might have that depth and breadth. Maybe you'll have to look for someone that has five more years of experience. Are you looking for a 29-year-old, a 30-year-old, or, or something like that? And I think we're not very attuned to the fact that there's a time frame problem there of people developing that skill set as well. Yeah, it's compounded by this this missing generation that we've had in the mining industry where we're at the point where a lot of those seasoned experts are retiring. Uh, there's nobody that's sort of middle-aged in the industry. And then you have this, this uh, big influx of the uh, folks between 21 and 30 years old or thereabouts. And, uh, you know, so I think part of it as well is, is just that we went through that rough patch uh, for about 25 years where there wasn't a lot of hiring. And, and now the consequences, you've got inexperienced people that you have to put in sensitive positions. And I think from like a people resource management side of things, as technology advances, then the 50-year-old the we go, well, too technologically inert now to actually work in this. But the experience that they have on more of this kind of softer side of things or the social side, like that's probably more important. It's like kind of the concept that when you're learning a trade, you're an apprentice to someone. 
The difference between 20-year-old plumber and a 50-year-old plumber is that the 50-year-old plumber has seen more problems, so they know exactly how to approach a problem that they've already seen, whereas a 20-year-old has no ideas. So that's the whole skill transfer that you really want in an apprenticeship. Yeah, it's it's funny. My uh, my husband spent his career in law enforcement, and he had this joke that uh, the rookie cop jumps over the wall without looking. The mid-career cop looks over the wall and then jumps over it, and the senior cop looks for the gate in the wall. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. So I think from like a skills point of view, I don't think we have a real mature kind of conversation about if we value these kind of softer side of things, then you're probably going to want people with a different set of experience rather than just pure technical horsepower or the ability to handle technology or something like that. Yeah, I think this whole mentoring issue, it's something we've been thinking about from a health and safety perspective with inexperienced minors, for example, and that need for the more mature, experienced supervisor to really take uh, ownership or responsibility, if you will, for helping that inexperienced person gain knowledge. And, And I think we need more of that sense of partnership and mentoring going forward as as we onboard people and try and get them socialized around not only the company and the business process, but sort of how this world works. Yeah, and I think that comment, how the world works, I think is really important. As companies, I think we sometimes get a little bit lost in that. Well, you know, these company values have worked really well in Arizona. Now let's take them to Ghana and let's see how well they work. Well, some of them will work, but some of them will be an abject failure as well. So you have to have that room to kind of evolve a little bit as well. Yeah, exactly. For somebody coming into the business, it's so exciting. I I mean, I just don't know why we don't have thousands and thousands of people wanting to come into mining because the challenges are the most impressive that you could find, I think, in any job, honestly. And the adventures, the places you see and and the things you get to experience. so I think that uh, if, if students really understood how exciting and how challenging this field is, uh, we would be inundated instead of having to do quite so much arm twisting. So do you think it's a communication problem? Like, are we really bad at communicating these kind of softer skills that we need in the industry? We could actually do a lot more communication of that technical side. We can teach you. That's not too big a problem. And arguably, as yes, technology plays more of a role that a lot of that technical kind of work will be handled by automation. So it's going to be more of the softer side that's going to be more important. Yeah, and I think that, you know, engineers tend to be an engineering personality and and geologists kind of have this uh, willingness to to repel off of the cliff. Uh, Adventure, you know, personality. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, we can teach basic concepts in mineral resources to a general education audience that could be, you know, all the social science majors. And the light will come on for some of them. And, you know, it doesn't mean they're going to be a geologist or an engineer, but they'll find role in the mining industry that that fits them. And I think similarly at the graduate level, then it's a little easier for us to take somebody who's a little more mature engineer or scientist and introduce them to some of the social science and, and vice versa as well. So, you know, I go back to this, this idea of the, the tribalism that we have in academia with languages that we don't translate well, gatekeepers who, who keep people out of, of our villages. 
and be cognizant of breaking that down and, and really making these larger communities of practice around mineral resources and not get so hung up on what people's major is. I think that's a good point. I think that, that that's exactly right. The other thing that I found is that you are very attuned to the fact that they are these multidimensional problems uh, in mining. How much of that is based on the kind of the diverse background you have? I would qualify you as a person that definitely has depth in different disciplines, but you also have breadth over many disciplines. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a proud engineer. Uh, but wanted to be a geologist from the time I was four years old. Uh, so, so I it's still you know, time. There, there is still time if you if you want to go down <laughs> that path. And you know, my my dad was a geography teacher, so I kind of picked up some of the social side there. And I had a sister who was very into history and political science, and and so I just kind of absorbed all of these different interests when I was growing up, and. Um, my my background in artificial intelligence and particularly neural networks allowed me to mix that math and engineering piece with looking at cognitive psychology and neurophysiology and getting to work with people in so many different disciplines and um and I think the other thing that helped me and and it may be a bit counterintuitive but being kind of the lone woman in a very male-dominated field meant that if I wanted to have any sort of social network at the university, I had to go to the fields where there were women. And that wasn't engineering. And so... That's a really interesting point, actually. Yeah. So I, I ended up connecting with, with women all over campus. And one of the issues that, that brought us all together was at that time when I started my career, there wasn't any concept of maternity leave for women faculty. And so one of the first things I did with some other brand new women professors was we wrote the university's first family leave policy. So I was working with women in English and and, uh, classics and um, history and women's studies and all of these different fields. And, And so we connected around some things that were absolutely not related to any of our disciplines but it gave us great respect for each other and and great respect for the things that, that we all did in our different fields. And so it, it actually, I think, was more helpful to me to be kind of that isolated person uh, because it forced me to have to go outside and, and make connections. I mean, I think it sounds like there were environmental factors as well, but I think you being the person you are, you're probably more attuned to seeking out those environments that were a lot more productive as well. And I think, yeah, if you're talking about the case of like why we need diverse thinking in this industry, I think that's a classic one. You know, like why wouldn't you want people to step out of the the one path they could walk? Surely it makes more sense to have more people involved. Yeah, absolutely. And and I have found it to be so rewarding to to be able to have those conversations with people in so many different disciplines. And uh, I respect what they do, and I think they respect what I do. On this podcast, we often talk about what is the future person in mining going to look like. Sometimes we are a little bit too static in how we look at it. People go, well, the way I got to the position I'm at is I did 
these things and that's exactly what everyone else needs to do to get to the same position but that doesn't quite work because even in my lifetime we've gone from computers playing essentially no part in my life to now I cannot think of anything I do that doesn't involve technology to some level. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. And we get so focused on the technology piece and, and get people excited about automation and, and robotics and all this cool stuff, which is, which is really good. Um, but we also have to keep in mind that the human piece makes the technology piece work. And, and we're so focused, you know, I, I have startup companies in the, technology space and I keep going back and reminding people that yeah the technology is really cool and it does some great things but it does great things for people yeah exactly I mean the people are still a part of that equation that we shouldn't uh, kind of forget yeah and it seems to be that we're in this rush to eliminate that but inevitably it's the people that are going to be using the technology yeah exactly and so we have to think a lot about human factors and, and how is it that people process information? How much can they process? Uh, how visual can they be? You know, it's, it's um, I think this whole kind of industrial psychology piece now becomes very critical to us and just understanding that, that interface between the human and all that technology and how to keep the technology harnessed in so that it's actually making us more intelligent and not less intelligent. So we're towards the end of our interview now. So we always end our interview with two questions. Uh, so one of them is, what is something, could be an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think needs to die in the mining industry? Uh, I think the us against them. Nobody loves us. Nobody understands us. Um, because they don't know that um, the, the minerals we produce are so important to them. I think, I think we have to get rid of that us versus them mentality that uh, if they just knew us better, they'd love us um, and really get down to understanding uh, what, what mining's value proposition is to society and being able to articulate that in a way that makes sense to society. I think that's a great one. We're definitely guilty of that. So conversely, what is something, uh, again, an idea, a behavior, a concept that you think we should keep in mining at all cost? Something that we should never forget? I think that we should remember that what we do in mining is about people and not about the rocks. Uh, not about the stuff that we produce out of the processing plant. At, at the end of the day, everything we do is fundamentally about people. I think that's great. That's uh, about as good a point to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mary. This is great. Well, thanks for a great conversation. It's, it's fantastic to talk to you. Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and the Mod. This episode was produced and edited by Ahmad. If you want to find out more about this podcast, check us out on explorationradio.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And we're even on Instagram. And if you like this podcast and want to help out, well, there's two things you can do for us. Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And consider supporting us in producing more of this content. 
You can find the details on how to do that on our website at explorationradio.com support. Until next time, let's keep exploring.